God's greatest gift to us is salvation. He opens our eyes to see the truth and then gives us the faith to receive his grace. A Christian is one who wants to worship Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you would open your Bibles to John, John chapter 9, beginning at verse 24. We're going to hopefully finish this chapter uh, today. Most of you know we've been in this study in John since November, probably be there through this year. John wrote his gospel to demonstrate to two, two things to his readers. One, that Jesus Christ is the promised God-man, the promised Messiah. And number two, to persuade those who read his gospel to place their faith in Christ as their Savior so that they can experience eternal life. So twofold goal. One, polemic, demonstration of the deity of Christ. And two, persuasive, to believe that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior and Lord so that you can experience eternal life. And in order to do that, John has selected seven signs because a sign points to something. There are seven supernatural miracles that document and demonstrate the deity of Christ. On a Sabbath day, the lesson today demonstrates that Jesus has just healed a man born blind. This is sign number six. The seventh sign will be the raising of Lazarus, and we'll get to that, Lord willing, in a couple of months. So last week, we opened this particular section on the healing of the man born blind, the first half of chapter 9. Today, Lord willing, we're going to finish that. This blind man had been begging for years at the gate of the temple to keep body and soul together. His parents were obviously lame. Uh, You wouldn't want to have them as parents. Uh, He would be not begging at the gates of the temple if he had responsible parents, but he didn't. The disciples and Jesus are walking by this man begging at the temple after they've had a confrontation with the Pharisees in chapter 8. And the disciples ask Jesus, was this man born blind because of his own sin or his parents' sin? Last week we explored that. They believe that if you had a calamity or a catastrophe or suffering, it was a direct result of a specific individual sin in your life that God was punishing you for. So they looked at this man as a subject for academic discussion, speculation. Jesus, on the other hand, looked at this man blind, made in the image of God, worthy of compassion, worthy of intervention. And Jesus told the disciples, this man was not blind due to sin, but so that, quote, the works of God might be displayed in him. So this man was blind for the glory of God. You might want to look at your suffering in another light because I know everyone in this room has scar tissue and current suffering. You are experiencing what you are experiencing for the glory of Jesus. Now right now you're going to take that by faith because most of us don't understand what God is doing in detail to take our struggles, our suffering, our problems, our pain and use them for his glory. But this man was born blind so that when Jesus healed him, the Messiahship, the deity of Jesus Christ would be elevated and exalted so everyone could see that, in fact, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, Jesus, the Creator, created new eyes for this man. He didn't restore his sight. He never had sight. He created new eyes for him and caused him to see, and his neighbors and acquaintances could hardly believe that this was the same man. He kept insisting, I'm the guy. I was blind. Now I see So his neighbors and acquaintances took him to the Jewish religious authorities, the Pharisees, who questioned him. And of course, they were attempting to discredit Jesus and discount the miracle because he had violated their Sabbath laws. According to them, making clay, anointing eyes, and healing someone on the Sabbath was considered work. And work was prohibited on the Sabbath, and so therefore they said, Jesus is a sinner because he's violating the Sabbath rules. Now, 
What they couldn't deny is that this man could now see. That was obvious. They didn't believe, however, that he had been born blind. They thought, well, this is not a miracle. He, he actually was born sighted. So they called his parents in and said, could this, was this your son? They said, yeah, this is our son. And yes, he was born blind. And yeah, duh, he now sees, but we don't know how or who, which was a lie because he had told them, obviously the entire city knew that Jesus is the one who healed him. But they were afraid to acknowledge that Jesus had healed him because the Pharisees had already agreed. Anybody who acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, is going to be excommunicated, disfellowshipped from the local synagogue. Literally, de-synagogued. And that would cut a religious, law-abiding, mosaic-honoring Jew from every social connection, every economic connection, and every religious connection in your life. It's just what we don't understand that. We say, well, let's go to another church. No, no, no. Everybody knew you, and if you were disfellowshipped, they knew you were disfellowshipped. They wouldn't associate with you. They wouldn't do business with you. They wouldn't hire you. They wouldn't take you out to dinner. They wouldn't be with you at all. You would be shunned, literally excommunicated. Even worse than that, the Jews at that time believed that if the Pharisees de-synagogued you, God closed the gates of heaven. And you are not allowed, in other words, being physically disynagogued costs you the eternal security. Now, that was a pernicious belief, and many, many uh, centuries later, uh, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, believed the same thing, and some people believe it today. Jesus said, I am the way. There is no human intermediary that can bring you to God or keep you from God. Jesus alone. Let's pick up the historical narrative. By the way, just FYI, I will not use the word story ever in describing a Bible story. In our culture, stories are fiction. They're fairy tales. This is a historical narrative. Happened in space and time at a specific point in human history on God's divine calendar. So let's look at the historical narrative, verse 24. So, a second time they called a man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Here's the principle. God's greatest gift to us is salvation. He opens our eyes to see the truth, and then gives us the faith to receive his grace. Let me repeat that. God's greatest gift to us is salvation. He opens our eyes to see the truth, capital T, which is his son, and then gives us the faith to receive his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Now, when the Pharisees said, give glory to God, that wasn't just an idle exaltation statement. It was an oath formula. When we go to court and we're testifying, they you know, put your hand on the Bible and you swear what? I promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. So it's a formula that says, I promise to tell the entire truth. And that was first noticed, noted in Scripture when Joshua confronted Achan, Joshua 7.19. Achan, of course, had stolen uh, goods, gold, silver, and raiment that was designated for the ark uh, for the worship of God. And Joshua said, give glory to God, tell me what you have done. So in other words, tell me the truth. God is a God of truth. And God is glorified when we speak the truth and when we live the truth. We de-glorify God when we lie, whether we lie with our lips or we lie with our lives. So the Pharisees are commanding this man, tell us the whole truth. And you say, well, why would they ask that? Because they don't believe the prior evidence. They've already got testimony from the neighbors. They've already got testimony from this man. They've got testimony from his parents. But it's inconvenient truth. They don't want to hear it. So they're asking him, commanding him to speak the truth. What they really want him to do is agree with them. They want to indict Jesus because they have declared that Jesus is a sinner. Notice that they don't use his name. They say, this man, disdainfully, right? They always call him this man. Now, the name Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, or Joshua in English means Savior, right? One who saves. 
Now, they refuse to believe that he's the Savior because that would be acknowledging the Old Testament actually did predict the coming of this man, the Messiah, and therefore they refuse to use his name. The Pharisees don't begin with evidence and pursue it to its logical conclusion. They don't let the data speak. They begin with a conclusion they want, a desired conclusion, and then they attempt to deny or distort the evidence in order to support their already chosen position. Many, many, many people do that, including Christians. Don't destroy me with the facts. I've already made up my mind, right? They believe that Jesus is a sinner because he violated their Sabbath rules. Therefore, he cannot be from God. He cannot be the Messiah. And in fact, he's under God's judgment because he's a man who claims to be God. That was a capital crime. Blasphemy was a capital crime. Therefore, they felt very justified in plotting his death. And in fact, in the perfect plan of God, accomplished that particular goal for which they will be held accountable for. So this formerly blind man, he's not going to get into theological debate with him. He says, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I'm not going to play theology 101 with you. I'm not going to get caught up in your details. But he will not back down from his personal testimony. He will not back down from what he does know. He says, I'm not competent to judge if Jesus is a sinner, but one thing I know, I was blind, and now I see. That was incontrovertible evidence that Jesus had performed a supernatural miracle in his life. And John, the author here, wants you to know that this man is giving glory to God by telling the truth about what Jesus had done in his life. Does that sound applicable to you and I? We give glory to God when we tell people what Jesus Christ has done in our life. We call that your testimony, right? What did Jesus do in your life? You were blind and now you see. How did that come about? All of us came to faith in perhaps little different ways. God is a very creative God and he draws us to himself based on what he knows we need to hear at that point in time. So I commend being ready to give an answer when people ask why you're doing what you're doing. That's called your testimony. Verse 26. So they, the Pharisees, said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered and said, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple. Well, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken through Moses but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Here's the principle. The Bible is his story. It tells us who Jesus is, and now we can have a relationship with God through him. The Bible is his story, history. It tells us who Jesus is, identity, and how we can have a relationship with through him, salvation. Now, this is the fourth time this man has been asked, how did this miracle occur? I want you to note that how, in this case, is the wrong question. The right question here is not how, the right question is who, right? Once you know the who, the how and the why come into proper perspective. Remember um, Job 38 through 41, Job's been on his high horse, and he wants to put God on a witness stand. He says, I'm going to get a judge, an impartial judge, if I can find one. I can't find one. I want to put God in the witness stand. I want to cross-examine him. Why is all this stuff happening to me? He owes me an explanation. So he's on his high horse, and then chapter 38 to 41, four chapters, God asks Job 70, count them, 70 questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So anytime... You are feeling full of yourself. Read Job 38 to 41, and you will get correct perspective on who you are and who God is. So in chapter, those chapters, those 70 questions, God reveals to Job who he is. His might, his power, his majesty, his love, his sovereignty, his providence, his ability to do what he chooses and always do the right thing. And once Job had a direct encounter with God, he stopped questioning, and he started worshiping. Job 42. Same with us. I've talked to people say, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have ask a lot of questions to God. When you get to heaven, you won't ask God any question. You will be amazed that you're there, and so will everybody else. 
When we get to heaven, we will be, number one, exceedingly, eternally, and infinitely grateful for the grace of God that got us there, and we will be surprised at who's there, and we will be surprised who's not there. Because judgment in life is full of deception and distraction and external evaluation instead of internal God-defined evaluation. So once you know the who, then the how and the why will come into perspective. This man is now in heaven. I guarantee you he's not asking God, how did you give me new eyes? He's not asking that question. He is praising Jesus. He was given not just physical sight, but far more important than physical sight, he was given spiritual sight and salvation. Think about it. Over the last 2,000 years since this miracle, how many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ because of this narrative? It's uncountable. Only the Holy Spirit knows that. It is fascinating when you read this statement. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They just admitted a miracle. They just admitted that Jesus had opened his eyes, that a miracle had taken place. But they were looking for loopholes. They were looking for ways to deny this miracle. Seems as though they were hoping this man would discredit himself. You know, if you ever, just saying, I'm not giving legal advice here, but if you ever are called by someone who wants your story in a legal matter, the more you talk, the deeper the hole you dig. They were hoping this man would contradict his story if he told it more and more so they could poke holes in it. He doesn't. He says the same thing over and over again. And now he's figured out they're not seeking for truth. They're simply using him for information to try and trap Jesus. Now, he is definitely not intimidated by these Jewish religious leaders. And he's not going to be bullied out of what he knows. He sarcastically tells them, you didn't listen the first time, why should I tell you again? I don't think we understand the courage that took. These people, were these Sanhedrin, were not just religious leaders. They were civic leaders and judicial leaders. This is like the Supreme Court and the Congress all rolled into one, right? And he says, maybe you want to become disciples of Jesus too. What is he reminding of them is Jesus is making far more disciples than you are. <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe you should stop making disciples and just join Jesus. Now, he knows very well they hate Jesus. He knows very well they had never considered becoming his disciples, and he's calling them out on their hypocritical behavior. It's interesting when you read, once again, be very careful when you read Scripture, because everything counts, even the spaces. When he asks him, you do not want to become his disciples too, do you? What's he saying? I am his disciple. I have become his disciple at this point. And, of course, they respond to him with verbal abuse. They say, you follow this man, we follow Moses. We're disciples of Moses, you're disciples of this man. Now, revile is a pretty strong word. It means to insult. It says, yo mama, and then some. It means to scorn. It means to criticize. It means to look down on. It means capiche. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty heavy stuff. They said, God spoke to Moses. We know that, but we don't know where this man comes from. In other words, we don't know the source and the origin of his power to do these miracles. Notice they don't deny the miracle. They never deny any miracle. Because it's prima facie evidence, you've got 5,000 men plus women and children that ate the loaves. Pretty hard to convince them nothing happened. They were hungry and now they're filled you have people that were demon-possessed that are now free. You have people that were sick and now they're well. Pretty tough. And he did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those miracles in both Judea and Galilee. They never denied the miracle, which is testimony that, in fact, they did take place because if anybody had a vested interest in denying the miracle to discredit Jesus, it's his enemies. It's the Pharisees. And, of course, now they're saying, well, we can't deny the miracle, but... Those, the power to do those miracles does not come from God, right? It comes from Satan. They will say that in a couple of chapters. He casts out demons by the prince of the demons. And they have been calling him 
insane and demon-possessed for chapters now. Chapters after chapters, months and months and months. So they can't deny the supernatural nature of the miracles, and they're saying we know his power doesn't come from God because he breaks the Sabbath, therefore he's a sinner, so the supernatural power to do the miracles must come from Satan. Now that's called believing your own press or whatever. It's interesting that the Pharisees say, we follow Moses, you follow this man, which says they believed you could not follow Moses and Jesus at the same time you had to choose. As a matter of fact, they didn't follow Moses themselves. Who was the first to predict the coming of the Messiah in terms of human form? Well, Jesus Christ predicted it himself, God the Father, in Genesis 3. Seed of the woman, going to bruise the head of the serpent. Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18.15 said, God is going to raise up a prophet like me from among you, and when he comes, you, escuche, listen to him and obey him. He was prophesying the Messiah, and they all knew it because when John the Baptist showed up, the Pharisees sent a delegation and said, are you the prophet, the prophet that Moses talked about? They knew this prophecy. Jesus said, yeah, I am he, right? The Old Testament contains nearly 300 prophecies and allusions that relate to the coming of the Messiah. It's dominant throughout the Old Testament. It is his story. The Messiah was prophesied to come and suffer and die. Just read Isaiah 53, be sent by God to save mankind from sin and death by dying in the place of the sinner. So the Pharisees could not claim ignorance of the Mosaic law that specified the coming of the Messiah. Moses had predicted his coming. Verse 30, this is one of the most astonishing four or five verses in this gospel. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Here's the principle. God's miracles authenticate his deity, but self-righteous people reject any evidence that challenges their predetermined conclusions. Jesus' miracles authenticate his deity, but self-righteous people reject any evidence that challenges their predetermined conclusions. Before I get started in unpacking this, here's the point of application. We need to be very careful we don't do that. I'm convinced that many times we read Scripture, but we don't really see it. We don't understand it because we're familiar with the story. The story, right? We think we know the narrative. Here's what it says. Because we think we know it, we stop doing the homework to really understand it. If you approached every historical narrative in Scripture with the mind of a child that says, wow, I wonder what's going on here. Let me ask questions I never thought about before. You will understand more than if you say, I've heard that before. I already know the conclusion. You're going to miss a lot that way. So the best religious minds in the nation, the scribes and Pharisees, those who claim to be experts at knowing the will of God through the Old Testament Scripture, they have declared, we don't know the origins of Jesus Christ even though the entire Old Testament is dominated about prophecies. Bob Deffenbaugh has commented that for the Pharisees to say they don't know where Jesus is from is like the CIA saying they don't know who the president of Russia is or they can't find Cuba on a map. You know, not quite credible. The Pharisees thought that Jesus came from Nazareth since that's where he grew up. He, he spoke like a Galilean, a Galilean accent, dialect. Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because Messiah was prophesied, Micah 5.2, to be born in Bethlehem. In fact, Jesus was physically born in Bethlehem, just as prophesied, but they didn't care enough to do the homework and maybe ask Mary, you know, where was Jesus born? The Old Testament clearly states Messiah is going to come to earth to suffer for human sin. And Jesus had clearly demonstrated his deity by performing hundreds of publicly witnessed supernatural miracles. The Pharisees only claim against Jesus was that he didn't follow their rules. That's really the core of it. Their rules he broke, 
And because of that, and he called them out in their hypocrisy, they wanted him dead because he was attacking their religious control over people and claiming to hold open or close the gates of heaven based on compliance with their rules. That will anger the Father who sent the Son as the only way of salvation. Self-righteousness will send you to hell quicker than anything. Now this, amazing, this man's amazing. He's the blind beggar, which means he's been an outcast from birth. He's been rejected. He didn't, probably didn't have friends in school, didn't go to school, right? He's barred from the synagogue. He cannot worship because congenital blindness was thought to have resulted from personal sin, even sin in the womb he saw in Jacob. He's apparently uneducated, but his faith and his logic are impeccable. And he now gives the Pharisees a lesson in Old, in Old Testament theology. I want you to listen to his logic. What's his major premise? His major premise is God only responds to the prayers of those who fear and hear him. Now, when I said listen, it doesn't mean God doesn't perceive. It says God responds to. God only responds to the prayers of those who fear and obey him. Minor premise. Opening blind eyes is impossible without God's power. Opening blind eyes is impossible without God's power. What's the conclusion? Since Jesus opened my eyes, he must be from God. Let's take a look at the major premise. God only responds to the prayers of those who fear and obey him. Psalm 66.8 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, just because you don't get an answer from God doesn't mean he doesn't hear. That's why we believe in confession of sin before supplication for stuff. Before you ask God for things, make sure you're a pure vessel and you've confessed sin so that you come to God with clean hands. It says if you regard iniquity, if you're hanging on to sin, don't expect God to hear because he wants you pure like his son. Number two, Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Here's good news. You and I are righteous in Christ. We have Christ's righteousness, not ours. Jesus said, anything you ask of the Father in my name, right, according to my will, what? I will do. So we can come with authority and we can come with confidence, Hebrews. Now, man says, if Jesus is a sinner... And under God's judgment, how do you explain the fact that God heard Jesus' prayer and opened my eyes supernaturally? How do you explain the fact that Jesus has done hundreds of supernatural miracles by the power of the Father if, in fact, God's judging him because he didn't keep the Sabbath? Illogical. Number two, the Old Testament records no miracle of congenital blindness being cured. None. There is no miracle in the Old Testament recorded where someone born blind could see. But the Old Testament does prophesy that Messiah will open blind eyes. Isaiah 35, 4. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Number, the, the second line in there, but he will save you, he's talking about Messiah. Messiah will save you. Psalm 42, 6. This is God the Father talking to God the Son, the Messiah. And he says, I will appoint you, Jesus Christ, the Son, the Messiah, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes. Most of the Pharisees had memorized the bulk of the Old Testament. They couldn't say God has never prophesied the, that fact that the Messiah would open blind eyes. As a matter of fact, it was one of the hallmarks of his ministry. He opened blind eyes five times, more than any other miracle in the New Testament. Five times he opened blind eyes out of 35 recorded miracles. So the man concludes, well, since Jesus miraculously opened my blind eyes by the power of God, he must be from God. Logical conclusion. The Pharisees are unable to cope with his logic, so they attack him personally. We call this an argument ad hominem, attack the man. They discount his conclusions by attacking his character. Since he was born blind, they say, you obviously sinned before birth. You were born entirely in sin, which means you obviously sinned before you were born, otherwise you wouldn't have been born blind and therefore you're a sinner and you're not qualified to teach us. Obviously, they didn't believe they were sinners, right? They didn't believe they needed the Savior. 
since they kept the Mosaic law, since they kept all the rules that they had written, they believed that their human tradition and their rule keeping is going to get them into heaven. Jesus was not impressed with that. He describes the Pharisees in Luke 18. He's talking about the Pharisee and a publican and the sinner, and they both go to the temple to pray, and this is how the Pharisee prays. This would be a good way for you not to pray if you want God to hear you. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. That would be a clue. Have you ever been to a public forum and listened to people pray? When you listen to them pray, there ain't nobody on the other end. Right? They are praying for the public to hear. They're not praying for the Lord to hear. And you can tell the difference. Much public praying doesn't even get to the ceiling, let alone through the ceiling, because it's not directed to God anyway. It's designed to impress the people. Okay, that's a sidebar. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get, yada, 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 all right? And Jesus is condemning this attitude of self-righteous arrogance. As a result of their pride, the Pharisees as a group reject the obvious evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And they excommunicate this man from the synagogue because he confronts their illogical rejection. He's now going to be shunned. He's going to be excluded from the entire life of the community. What is interesting, he is rejected by those who claim to know God. I don't like to admit this, but I am very convinced that there will become a day when the remnant who follow God faithfully will be rejected by the religious who claim to follow God and really don't. Get your seatbelts on. It's coming. Think about it. This man has not been allowed to attend any synagogues anyway due to his blindness. So he might have thought, I can speak the truth. What have I got to lose? I haven't been in the synagogue anyway because of my blindness. Furthermore, I cannot deny that Jesus has opened my eyes and the Pharisees can't explain it anyway. If these spiritual gurus who can't see what Ray Charles can see, why should I be afraid to follow them? And so he just tells them the truth, right? This is what it is. Now, John 9 is about physical sight, but it's also about spiritual sight, which is the real sight. It's about a man who was born physically blind, and he was born spiritually blind. Jesus first opened his physical eyes so he could see the world. Then he opens his spiritual eyes so he could see the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, respond by faith and belief, be saved, and spend eternity with Jesus. Now, the Bible often uses this metaphor of blindness and sight. It's talking about blindness. It represents the spiritual darkness of human sin, human corruption, human fallenness, human ignorance. Blindness in Scripture refers to humans' complete inability to respond to God without divine intervention. And the Bible describes the unsaved in Ephesians 4.18 as being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorances that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Refusal to believe ultimately prevents you from believing. You now have no choice. Your unbelief has morphed into inability to believe, right? Now, after the sin of Adam and Eve, everyone on planet Earth was born in sin. We were born spiritually blind. We were born spiritually separated from God. It's our DNA. But on top of our sin nature that we were born with, Satan, the father of lies, uses his power to deceive and further blind the minds of the unsaved. 2 Corinthians 4.4. Paul is describing the unsaved. He says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So they have sin nature blinds us, and then we have satanic oppression and deception that further blinds humanity without Christ. And as a result of their spiritual blindness, what you have described is precisely what we see in our culture 
today. Unsaved people routinely and willfully reject God's boundaries between good and evil. Isaiah 540 is us, not Christians, our culture. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, in human eyes, good and evil are relative terms, like shades of gray. Our culture believes that you can make it up as you go, that truth for you is not truth for you. Patrick Moynihan, probably one of the brightest senators uh, in the last hundred years, once said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Our culture no longer believes that. They believe that you can make it up as you go and what's truth for you is not truth for you. No. Truth is absolute, irrespective of what you believe about it or not. You can say, I don't believe in the law of gravity, and you can jump off a 10-story building and you will demonstrate it. Right? Truth always is. In God's eyes, there is a definite difference between good and evil. And as God's definition of good and evil, it counts not the culture's. But the culture has rejected the existence of God, so therefore they can do what they want to do. It is terribly easy to assume that God agrees with my definition of right and wrong. It's terribly easy to do that. To substitute my opinion for what God has said. And then bring God out as the baseball bat to hit somebody over the head who doesn't agree with you. Just be very careful that you are saying what God said, not what you think. There can be a difference between what God says in, in his word and your opinion about it, right? Keep your finger very carefully on the page when you start quoting Almighty God. Keep your finger on the page. The Pharisees believed that God agreed with them. Now, whatever they said, God was going to enforce. They were self-righteously pride and they were self-righteously blind. And the solution for human blindness of sin is the divine light of the promised Messiah. Last chapter, Jesus said, John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Of course, the Pharisees rejected Jesus, the light of the world, rejected the evidence that proves that he was the Messiah. That's why they shut the messenger up who testified to them of the truth. Because the truth contradicted their predetermined conclusions. One of the things you can do is you can ask the Lord, Lord, Open my mind to what you want me to know. Not what I think I know, but what you want me to know, because you are the author of truth. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding me. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have both seen him, and he is the one who was talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Here's the principle. A Christian is one who wants to worship Jesus Christ. A Christian is one who wants to, who delights to worship Jesus Christ. So this man is at the low point in his life, and Jesus pursues and saves him. Jesus used his decades of blindness, his miraculous sight, his neighbor's unbelief, his parents' rejection, his interrogation by the Pharisees, and finally his expulsion from the synagogue to prepare his heart to hear the word of the Savior, and respond to it. Think about it. He can't cling to his family for security. They've rejected him. He can't hold on to Judaism for salvation. They've kicked him out of the synagogue. He can't go back to begging. He can now see. Getting his sight back presented him with some pretty serious, unexpected problems. His old life was gone, but he wasn't sure what the new life was going to bring. Jesus did not seek out this man and present himself as the Messiah until his heart was ready to hear and respond, until everything else he could trust in was gone. And some of us came to faith only when everything else was gone. Amen? Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. A couple weeks ago we talked about nothing is sadder than someone who's lost and doesn't think they're lost. John 15 says, you did not chose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So 
That goes back to our first point. The greatest gift you have from God is salvation. Jesus is the good shepherd of a hundred sheep. What does he do when one is lost? He puts the 99 in the sheepfold where they're safe, and he goes and he spends all night, he spends all day, he spends whatever time it takes. How many years did Jesus Christ seek you out? How many years? For me, it was years, because I'm above average stupid. (laughs) Don't ever discount the fact that God comes to seek and to save the lost. We were saved because God took the initiative to save us, and we are kept secure because he keeps on seeking us when we wander away, and we know better, and we do it anyway. There's an old song, Victory in Jesus, that says, He sought me, and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Jesus sought this man, he sought the paralytic man in the same way that he seeks us. This is one of the reasons you never, never, never stop praying for your loved ones who are lost. The Holy Spirit is still seeking them. You cry out to the Lord to keep doing that until the day you go home. Never give up. Jesus asked them the most profound question, the most eternally profound question ever asked. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now this blind man is fairly knowledgeable about the Old Testament. He knows there's no scriptural record of anyone ever being born blind that was cured. He knows there's a prophet, is someone who does the will of God, someone who God hears. He knows the Messiah is going to come and establish his kingdom on earth. He knows enough about Daniel 7 to know that one of Messiah's titles is Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles of himself. He uses it 13 times in the Gospel of John, John alone. What Jesus was really asking, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one and only God-man? Do you believe that he is the one whom God sent from heaven? to pay the penalty for human sin by dying in the sinner's place, to reconcile a broken relationship with God. All of that's tied up in the title Messiah. And this is pretty obvious. The man's never seen Jesus. So he says, who is he? That I can believe in him. He says, who is he, Lord? The word Lord here is the word kyrie, K-Y-R-I-E. It means sir. Who is he, sir? It's a term of respect that I may believe in him. He had a willing heart. He was ready to believe. The Holy Spirit's been at work in his heart, regenerating him, giving him new life, new birth. His heart's been prepared. Remember the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils? This guy's heart is good soil. It's ready for the word of God to be planted in it. And Jesus then identifies himself as the Messiah, the God-man. And the man responds with, Lord, I believe. Now this second Lord is not Kidia, It means Messiah, owner, master, creator, savior. It's a whole nother level. Once he understands he's in front of the creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one sent from God, sent in human flesh, now he worships. And he doesn't have to be forced to worship. He wants to worship. As a matter of fact, you can define a Christian as one who worships Jesus Christ. And if worship is problematic for you or you don't want to worship, that's a heart problem. Ask the Lord to show you what it is. A Christian is one who delights to worship. It brings great joy for us to bow down in front of our King and our God. I want you to know this progression of this man's faith. In verse 11, he knows Jesus is the man who is called Jesus. By verse 17, he says Jesus is a prophet. Verse 27, he says, Jesus is one worthy of being followed. In verse 33, he claims that Jesus has come from God and was therefore able to open his eyes. And finally, when he sees Jesus face to face, he worships him as Lord, God, and Savior. You can see his faith growing. We believe that when you present people with the gospel, of course, they all respond the very first time. Many times their hearts have not been prepared. They know nothing. It may take months of prayer and love and care and the Holy Spirit getting the soil of their heart ready. The Holy Spirit's been work at this man's life each step of the way. As a matter of fact, he was working in his heart from the day he was born and he's been blind the entire time. The same Holy Spirit is working today. He never, ever, ever stops working, never, ever stops praying. Verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see. 
and those who do see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. Here's the principle. Jesus came to earth to save sinners. Those who humbly accept him will see and be saved, while those who arrogantly reject him are blinded and judged. Let me say that again. Jesus came to earth to save sinners. He said, I've come to seek and to save their lost. Those who humbly accept him will see and be saved. Those who arrogantly reject him are blinded and judged. So under the category of judgment, Jesus said, I came for judgment, it includes giving sight to those who admit they are blind and blinding those who claim they can see. The Pharisees claimed they could see. He's talking about spiritual sight here, not physical sight. It means that anyone who humbles themselves and admits they're a sinner, they're given spiritual sight to see the Savior, to see their sin, to see eternity, to see the Father through the Son. And they're saved by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. And Jesus clarified, of course, prior, this man was not born blind because of sin. He was born blind that the glory of God might be made visible. You know how God is most glorified? He's most glorified when he saves people who come to him in humility, admit they are blind, admit they are unworthy, and do not depend on themselves, but depend fully on Jesus Christ. Salvation is God's great glory. The one who the national leaders condemned, Jesus seeks out and saves. Now, the healing of the blind man is salvation to him, but the healing of the blind man is judgment on the Pharisees. They think he deserves to be blind, and they condemn him and excommunicate him from the synagogue, but Jesus seeks him out and saves him. So there's a group of Pharisees that are with Jesus, different group of Pharisees than the one with the blind man. And after hearing Jesus say, those who see are going to become blind, they say, we are not blind too, are we? Begging the question, please say no. In other words, are we going to come under judgment too? And Jesus tells them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. What does that mean? If you were humble, if you were contrite, if you confessed that you were blind, if you confessed that you needed divine intervention, if you confessed you needed divine salvation, I would save you from your sin. You would have no sin because you would be saved. But it requires humility and admitting you can't see without divine intervention. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Proud people arrogantly claim to see on their own. They think they're worthy of God's favor based on their own righteousness. They reject the light of the world. You reject the light of the world, they're blinded. And you remain in your sins, right? Jesus said, God rejects your pride, does not forgive your sins because you don't confess your sins. As a matter of fact, you claim you don't have any sins. You can't be forgiven of sins that you claim you don't have, right? That's blind, willful blind. Your sin remains means that you will die with unforgiven sin and be separated from God forever. Now, the story of the blind man and the Pharisees, it's our story, right? Before Christ entered our life, we were blind to spiritual reality. But we thought we could see. Yes? When Christ came into our lives and we received the Holy Spirit as a gift, He opened our eyes to spiritual reality. And we knew that we had been blind, but now we can see. When you talk to people about Jesus, understand that without the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit, John 3 where they are given new life and regenerated and born again, they are blind. And they will not be able to understand what you say. They won't be able to comprehend it. That's why prayer is so important that the Lord would open their eyes. If you want to pray a prayer, pray that the Lord will open their eyes and get out of the way because he might use some pretty unconventional methods to open their eyes. And it's probably going to involve some shock, right? This is our story. 
Read this chapter. Put yourself in the place of the blind man. Because that's who we were. And that's who we are. Let's summarize, and then Al is going to come and do prayer and praise with us. Point one. God's greatest gift to us is salvation. He opens our eyes to see the truth and then gives us the faith to receive his grace. Point two. The Bible is his story. It's all about him. It tells us who Jesus is and how we can have a relationship with God through him. Point three. Jesus' miracles authenticate his deity, but self-righteous people deny any evidence that challenges their predetermined conclusions. The Pharisees could not admit that he was the Messiah because at that point in time, they'd have to bow their knees. We have people today that believe the same thing. Number four, a Christian is one who wants to worship Jesus Christ, delights to worship Jesus Christ, is exhilarated to worship Jesus Christ. By the way, sometimes when you worship Jesus Christ, you're just tired. They ever come to the Lord and said, Lord, I know what to say. I am so confused. I am so tired. I'm so out of gas. I fall asleep probably half the time I'm praying. Part of it in the presence of the Lord is very peaceful. When it's very peaceful, we relax. That's why I like to pray walking. It's tough to fall asleep when you're walking. <laughs> I mean, you can, but you'll wake up quick, right? This is true confessions time here, right? And lastly, Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners. Those who humbly accept him will see and be saved. Those who arrogantly reject him are blinded and judged. Thank you so much for your attention. This is so rich, so rich. Love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.